Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. When uh, Ian, right? When Ian mentioned to me that he was feeling a, a pain in his shoulder and he felt God wanted to heal some people with, with shoulder problems, he was thinking of like two or three. <laughs> and it just sort of, I, I think half the church was down here praying for their shoulders. But then I wonder, have too many of us been bearing heavy burdens for too long? I don't know. But we have a God who heals. And he has set a time for healing. As we come to the word, let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray. We need bifocals, Lord. One lens focused on the sacred page. The other raised to see the light of our eternal heritage. In Jesus' name, amen. On Saturday mornings, around 6.30 a.m., my stepfather would, would drive downtown to a small, weathered, clabbered house, paint peeling, on a side street across from the still-darkened Dairy Queen. I grew up in a small town. It wasn't so bad that you knew everybody. The problem was they all knew you. (laughs) You couldn't hide anything. But he'd go drive downtown to this little weathered, kind of beat up, clabbered house. It was a shotgun house, as they call it. He'd park on the street. He'd walk down the sandy driveway to the back porch and knock on the rickety screen door. And then he would hand the rather bird-like, very elderly black woman there a few dollars. She would disappear into the house and come back with a package in a brown paper bag. And then he would hurry home down the still empty streets. On the rare occasions that I awoke and got up in time, he would generously share his stash. And like desperate junkies, we hovered over his brown bag of fresh, crispy cream donuts. (laughs) Do I hear an amen? That all started with Joseph LeBeouf, a chef from New Orleans who got a job as a cook on an Ohio river barge. He sold his light, fluffy donuts down at the riverfront wherever they docked. The Paducah hardware store owner, Ishmael Armstrong, loved him so much he, he talked 
Leboeuf into teaching him and selling him, actually, the recipe. And then with his 18-year-old nephew, Vernon Rudolph, he started making and selling donuts. In 1934, they moved the operation to Nashville, and in 1937, young Vernon was ready to strike out on his own, and he moved to Winston-Salem and opened the Krispy Kreme Donut Company. Uh, a foretaste of heaven had descended upon North Carolina. <laughs> they sold to convenience stores and backdoor operations, and bit by bit they opened more bakeries across the southeast. And when Vernon retired, the company changed hands. And with that, there were troubled times ahead. In 2000, Krispy Kreme went public, first on the NASDAQ and then on the New York Stock Exchange. Stock value shot up, topping in 2003, but all was not well in paradise. Markets, they built too many in, in close, too close together. And they'd be selling in convenience stores practically across the street from their own stores and factories, their franchises. So the market was oversaturated. The franchises, the outlets had to compete against each other. And supply purchases and deliveries were manipulated to improve the quarterly numbers. And there were accounting scandals. By the end of 2005, Krispy Kreme stock had lost 80% of its value and the company faced bankruptcy. In five years. So would the world's best donut company and the world's best donuts follow the dinosaur and the dodo bird into extinction. I will be eternally grateful to Almighty God and to J.A.B. Holding Company of Luxembourg for saving Krispy Kreme donuts for posterity. <laughs> no, 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 forget posterity. I thank God for saving them for me. <laughs> but it's a fundamental business principle. Don't forget what your product is. Don't forget what your product is. Could you say that with me? Don't forget what your product is. Krispy Kreme started out making incredible donuts. And they expanded slowly in new markets, but they always picked markets that were immediately adjacent to the markets they were already serving. That is, the people out on the fringe of their market, their market area, who had eaten just enough donuts to start craving more, and then they'd move in. And when it became a publicly traded company, management forgot what their product really was. 
And instead of donuts, they only paid attention to the value of stock shares. Everything was made to serve the stock market, to look good on paper. But in the final analysis, the measures, uh, the, the numbers, they were just a measure for donuts. If you neglect the, the donuts, the numbers are going to suffer. And that's what happened. Happily, the Stock Exchange Commission caught them doctoring the numbers and forced them to remember what their product really is, incredible donuts, and as a result, Krispy Kreme lives. Now, I tell this, for me at least, gut-wrenching tale of near tragedy. <laughs> I tell it because it's a lesson that the church needs to take to heart. Every church, and the church at large, and especially the church in America. We might not be a formal business, but if a church forgets what its product is, it is going to lose its market share. Don't get so obsessed with production or market share or numbers that you lose sight of your product. Church, don't forget what your product is. That being said, what is the product of the church? This morning I want to look at 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. There we go. 1 John chapter 1, first seven verses. The elder writes, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we've seen it and testified to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy might be your joy. It's not clear in the Greek. It's that somebody's joy, that all of our joy, I suspect, that it may be complete. And this is the message we've heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him... While we're walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. The elder... Church tradition says that it's the Apostle John, but that's just a guess. He is satisfied to call himself the elder. So that's what I call him too. I mean, I was raised that way. You, you, call, you call people by what they want to be, what, what they like to be called. And so I call him the elder. 
because in the other epistles he wrote, that's what he calls himself. So, so the elder looks back on what he, he has experienced from the early days, what he saw and heard and handled, and that is the word of life. Now, he doesn't say right up front that he's talking about Jesus. That's what he's doing, though. For this life was revealed. That is, he saw Jesus. He heard him. He touched him. He spent time with him. He lived with him. And he continued to experience the risen Jesus in his life and in his walk of faith throughout a long ministry and a long life. And what he wants to do is tell his readers about it. All that he has seen and heard. By the way, notice that he says that three times, that he is declaring what he has seen and heard. That is, it's the story of Jesus the truth of what he taught and did, the power of his passion and his resurrection to eternal life. And it's also with that his personal story of all that he experienced in Christ. All that he has seen and heard God do. And tell you, that's what he wants to do. But there's a reason for that. It says, so that. There in verse 3. So that you also may have fellowship with us. That is, he's sharing the story of Jesus, his own personal story of Jesus, and is writing this letter to create a living bond between you, his reader, and himself. And he calls it koinonia. He uses that word just in these few verses four times. It's that important to him. Koinonia. It's a well-known Greek word. Most of you, I'm sure, know it. Koinonia. We, but we don't really think about what it means, and it's usually translated as here, fellowship. Fellowship. That's an un, to me, that's an unfortunate choice of words because to me, and maybe it's just me, but to me, fellowship is a rather stuffy and stodgy word. You know what I mean? It brings to mind stiffly formal conversation, laughter prohibited. You know, those, those church picnics where the best you can say about them is, a good time was had by all. <laughs> Yuck. I'm not real fond of the word fellowship because it's just, it's not dynamic. It doesn't really communicate the depth and the, the warmth and the power of what, what koinonia does. Koinonia is so much richer. It means, quite literally, having something in common having something in common. That it's like an animated conversation about something that two people or more have a burning interest in. You know, where you, they just keep talking and you can't shut them up and, and, and they miss 
they, you know, they need to leave, but they can't because they're just so into it. So it's, and it's more than just fellowship as we understand that. It's friendship. It's a relationship. Call it a buddy moment. It's a buddy moment. The elder wants to tell his first person story of Jesus to create this intimate relationship, this buddy moment with you and with me. And the elder... He affirms that he has the very same kind of intimate relationship with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. They're close. They're buddies. They have a shared common interest. And he wants you and me to be in relationship with him, with them as well. Let's be friends. Let's be close friends. Let's be buddies. And let me introduce you to my best friend. And so I know it's simplistic, and you've probably heard this, but imagine a triangle. You have three points at the corners. There's God, there's you, there's me. And on any tri triangle, of course, the closer that the two lower points get to the top, the closer they come to each other as well, right? If these two people down here, if you and me, if we're not coming closer together, then one of us isn't getting any closer to Jesus either. Just saying. Now, everything the elder does is to foster and to build those relationships, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and a relationship with others who have come or are in the process of coming to know God too. That's what he and that's what the church is here for. That's, that's what Jesus died for, didn't he? He went to the cross to take our sin, to open up the way so we can come into relationship with God the Father. And he tells us to tell other people and to create a church, the body of Christ, which are people, which are pieces that relate to each other and with Jesus. That's what we're here for, to create and to nurture those two vital, life-changing relationships. What is the product of the church? The product of the church is relationships. Buddies in Christ. First, the relationship with God in Jesus Christ, and secondly, with one another, with believers and those in the process of becoming believers, whether they know it or not, yet. It means, however, that everything else that the church does is ultimately only important 
insofar as it serves that one purpose. Can I hear an amen on that? That's everything we do is to serve that one purpose, that creating that network of relationships. I had to get my amen then because I'm getting ready to step on some toes. Churches do lots of stuff, lots of other stuff, but that's not our product. Like first, buildings and budgets, they're useful. But that's not the business of the church. I mean, Dell Computers has big buildings and budgets too, but that's not their product. They build computers. They sell computers. The early church had no buildings. They had no budget to speak of. There are thriving churches in the third world today, what we would even consider mega churches, even by our standards, that have no buildings but meet in the open air. Budgets and buildings, they're sort of like the factory buildings for creating life-changing relationships. That's all they are. And if you have to get along without one, you can get along without one. If you have one, hallelujah, use it for building relationships. That's the business of the church. That's our product. Second, the second example, you know, and you run into this a lot these days, Mega churches, I read books from pastors of mega churches, and one of the things that has, strike, has it struck me over and over and over is how many pastors and their churches are obsessed with excellence in programming. You know what I'm talking about? Excellence. It's all got to be about excellence. And I, I'm, all, I'm all for give, bringing your best to God, yes. But... They, you know, there's slick packaging for the worship experience, and they'll have professional praise bands and state-of-the-art sound light show, lasers, projection screens, and they might even have pyrotechnics. You know, and they'll have the uh, mass choirs, full, pro full professional orchestra. I like this one better, but full, they'll have the full thing. It just... Pastors can obsessively promote the drive to excellence to the point of insufferable micromanagement. And I get it. I get it. I appreciate a polished, well-choreographed show. I appreciate bringing your best to God. But excellence in itself, excellence doesn't bring anybody to Jesus. It really doesn't. Excellence doesn't create healthy relationships. Sometimes, sometimes it takes something sloppy and messy to bring people together. I remember when I was a scout leader and I would take my patrol out camping, it was when the weather was the worst. I remember one, I'm getting off, the, off here, but... It's such a good example. We went hiking in. It started raining when we started hiking in. It was going to be a two-day camp. 
And it, we were carrying everything in. It was raining and it was muddy and slogging and we set up the tents. And later that day we were cooking in the kitchen tarp. Somebody tripped over the line and it fell into the fire and burned up. <laughs> that was the trip where I discovered that my big tent that the seam had rotted out down the middle of the floor so the water just collected inside and I had two inches of water inside my tent. Everything went wrong on that trip that could go wrong. When they went to collect the firewood and it was all wet, you can just imagine everything goes wrong. Two days of constant rain and misery and then we had to hike out in it with all of our gear wet and heavy and down, walking through a, down muddy, mucky street, uh, roads and pathways to get out of there. It's about six miles out. That trip did more to bring us together and to meld us into a working patrol than any good trip we could have had. It's getting me off of excellence, but there's a reason that slick megachurches attract lots of young people, but they have trouble cultivating lifelong disciples. It's the network of relationships. It's missing because they've lost sight of the church's product, which is relationships. Third, a third example. I appreciate music. My father was a professional singer before he was called into the ministry. My mother was a singer and choral director. I grew up singing in the church choir. I appreciate good pitch. I appreciate harmonies as much as anyone. I know the satisfaction that when the voices finally blend and that piece of music comes together and it just clicks. It's wonderful. I know that feeling when a song just grabs you, goosebumps and all. I appreciate praise bands. Back when I was in my late teens, I started a uh, Christian hard rock band. <laughs> we did Christian hard rock. We were the first Christian hard rock band in the whole state of Florida. We weren't any good, but we were the first. <laughs> Just saying. But having said that, it means I also know the, how choirs and praise back, bands can get caught up in the temptation of pride and ego. Last time I checked, we're all human. And as I have said and will continue to say, People do peoplish things. That's one of the peoplish things we do. And we can, one of those peoplish things is we can do all the right things and still do them for all the wrong reasons. So, what is the most important thing for a choir or a praise band? And this is just as an illustration here among other things. The most lasting contribution 
of a choir or a band to the life of the church, any church, is only in very small part the music it brings in worship. Rather, it's the network of friendships that develops between believers, first in the choir and between the choir and the church. And it develops over time as they talk and laugh and sing and occasionally sing off key together. There's a, a bond that happens, and anyone who directs a choir knows that, when there's a bond that happens in a choir, and that is the most important contribution that they can make to the life of the church. Not discounting the music, I'm just raising up that bond of fellowship, of koinonia that happens. And that can happen with any group, men's groups, women's circles, Sunday school classes, life groups. Yes, even session committees. <laughs> There's a bond that can happen. I tell session committees, if you're on a committee and you meet every month, even if you don't have any business for your docket, meet up anyway. Meet, spend that time praying together, sharing, telling stories, sharing your testimony, whatever. Just let it be a bonding moment for the people in, in, the, uh, in the committee because that will do more good and bring more health to the congregation than any business and planning, committee planning that you can do. Not to say the planning and the programming isn't, isn't valuable, but the bond of koinonia that happens there is even more precious and more valuable because that is the real product of the church. So the, what's the work of the church? It's sharing personally, one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, what you have seen and heard and touched concerning the word of life, sharing what Jesus did for us all, and sharing how and where Jesus has been there in those pivotal moments in your life. And the product is then bringing people into contact with Jesus and fostering a network of intimate relationships there between believers. We're here to produce, to replicate that healthy triangle of you, me, and Jesus. And one day, one day you and I are going to gather one day you and I are going to gather in that great heavenly hall there before the throne of Almighty God in awe and wonder. And our human pride and ego is going to fall away. It'll be utterly and senseless and foolish in the light of his unimaginable glory and grace. 
monumental building plans and budgets will all fall away. Professionalism and excellence and all will fall away. Every last one of us will be raised, glorified, and perfected. All the trappings will fall away. And there will only be you and me and Jesus our Savior. And maybe a great big banquet table piled high with hot Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we move forward as a church and as believers in Christ, Keep our eyes on the prize. Keep us focused on the real work and mission and product of the church, what Jesus died to make happen. And that whatever we do, that we do it for that reason and in that way. And we ask this trusting in the name of Jesus, that great Lord of the church, the head of the body, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. As we come to the table... This one, at least this time, is not piled with Krispy Kreme donuts. Rather, it's the bread and the wine, the body and blood of our Savior and Lord. Maybe the only thing that's even better than Krispy Kreme donuts. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.